Welcome back. It's a Thursday, the ninth day of March, 2023. I'm your host, Mark Call, and I'm going to start off today with several signs of the times stories that arguably are indicators of what's coming for those with eyes to see. Like this one from Natural News that says the world's largest purveyor of DNA services, you've heard of them, Ancestry.com, they'll take your blood and supposedly tell you what your DNA says about you, but one thing's for sure, that information just may have other uses too. Well, now they've been gobbled up by one of the biggest investment giants on planet Earth. The public-private partner day Tute Private Investments, Blackstone, which has purchased Ancestry.com for $4.7 billion, says Natural News, placing what Reuters calls a big bet on family tree chasing as well as personalized medicine. And what do you bet that there's another reason, too, folks? In case you're unfamiliar with their services, says the piece, Ancestry.com says they not only allow their customers to trace their genealogy, but also identify specific genetic health risks using testing kits. And the story says Blackstone's hope is that because of COVID-1984, more customers will now stay home and use Ancestry.com services, generating more profits for the investment firm. (laughs) And if that fails, folks, I guess they can always sell that information to somebody with really deep pockets and an interest in developing, who knows, maybe genetically targeted bioweapons. Color me skeptical, in other words. No, don't worry, folks. You know that could never, ever happen, right? And as Ethan Huff writes for Natural News, just why would a major investment firm decide they want to own a family history company? Here's part of the answer. Ancestry.com currently has more than 10,000 terabytes of data on genetics, immigration, births, marriages, and deaths that will now fall into the hands of a so-called private investment firm. And another thing worthy of note is that Jeffrey Kindler, former chairman and CEO of Pfizer, hey, there's a company you may have heard of, is now a senior advisor at Blackstone, suggesting that that investment giant is now aiming for a venture into the, ahem, customized medicine industry. Said one follower of the deal, you don't spend 4.7 billion bucks unless you have plans to make it back, and more. Said Shirley Rouge, I don't believe for a second that Blackstone bought Ancestry simply because they love people. By the way, Natural News does harken back to a story that they did about when it came out that Communist China was stealing people's DNA from so-called at-home testing kits. Others, your host can't help but think, have worried about the deep cranial cavity nasal swab test probes as well. And yes, there is this. The executive director of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, Alan Butler, added to the worries around this big deal by telling CBS News in an interview that, quote, the concern when there's a big deal like this is that investors might be interested in that data for other reasons, unquote. And you got to wonder, is it going to be in the ways that customers may have intended when they gave over their information? Item from Tyler Durden and Zero Hedge, there's been a significant data breach that hits lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Hey, is it related? Or is it just possible there's a common moral to the story here? Well, you be the judge. The chief administrative officer of the House of Representatives, Catherine L. Zvindor, told lawmakers on Wednesday that their personal information had been exposed in what they called a significant data breach at a health insurance marketplace. Hey, that too could never happen, right? I've been informed by members of the United States Capitol Police and D.C. Healthling, she said, of that data breach impacting members and staff, potentially exposing the PII, or personal identifiable information, of thousands of enrollees. And it's your data, she told the Congress critters and their staff, that may have been compromised in a letter to Capitol Hill on Wednesday. Although it did not appear, say these stories, that lawmakers were the specific targets, just uh, collateral damage. And if that didn't make them nervous, this probably should have. 
Currently, she wrote, I don't know the size and scope of the breach, but I have been informed by the Federal Bureau of Instigation, FBI, that account information and PII of hundreds of members and house staff were stolen. And I'll notify you directly, she added, if your information was compromised. After which, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries were both told by the FBI that cybersecurity agents found their personal information from D.C. HealthLink on the dark web, according to the WAPO, along with things like names of spouses, dependent children, social security numbers, and home addresses. And Spindor told lawmakers and staff they'd better, quote, freeze your credit to prevent anyone from being able to open a credit card or take out a loan in your name. And here's one that I can't help but think ought to raise more than a few eyebrows, and uh, especially when it comes to rampant crime and the District of Criminal Swamp. This comes from Joseph Lord via the Epic Times, also places like Zero Hedge, and it says the U.S. Senate on March 8th overwhelmingly approved a House-passed bill that would overturn, yeah, you heard that right, overturn a controversial D.C. crime law that basically establishes more crime that critics have blasted because it's, uh, well, at minimum, soft on crime. Even the Biden fewer says he won't veto it because, after all, this one hits too close to home. The measure passed in an 81 to 14 vote with 33 Democrats crossing the aisle to vote alongside every Republican and independent in the body. The resolution would block the so-called Revised Criminal Code Act, or RCC, passed by the D.C. Council that lessens penalties for a whole lot of violent crimes, things like carjackings and home burglaries. I guess that's especially important if somebody knows your home address. The Reform was introduced as the district is experiencing, hey, here's a shocker, a record-breaking crime wave. And that doesn't even count what's going on on the floor of Congress. And how bad was this thing? Well, it was so bad it was even vetoed initially by D.C. Mayor Muriel the Bowser, but the council later overruled her veto in a 12-to-1 vote, up until Congress said, oh, no, who are we kidding here? We can't have that. And again, how bad is it? Well, so bad that even Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, rhino from Kentucky, spoke against the bill in remarks on the Senate floor and highlighted recent crime incidents in Washington. You see, it does matter if it's really close to home where they live. Carjackings, he said, and cartels have become a daily routine. Homicides are racking up at a rate of four, four per week, unquote. <laughs> and this would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. We are the greatest superpower in history, said the top Senate rhino. This is our capital city, but local politicians have let its streets become a danger, unt, an embarrassment. And he went on to imply that so-called lawmakers just might have had a hand in what's going on. Gee, do you think? You know what? Maybe they remember the line. I certainly do. Remember? When they start to feel the heat, they just might see the light. But don't think for a minute that tyranny isn't still popular when the politicians are insulated enough from the uh, fruits of their labors. It's all about control, says a piece from the Gateway Pundit and Jim Hoft. Big Brother Britain is now requiring homegrown chickens to be registered and licensed in order to, yeah, are you buying this, tackle the bird flu as part of their ongoing efforts to combat avian influenza, or maybe the ability of people to feed themselves, given what they've got planned, the governments of England, Wales, and Scotland have introduced a proposal midweek that would make it mandatory for anybody who dares to have a chicken to formally license and register their birds, no matter how many they own. I guess a proper way to put that would be thought that they owned. Failure to do so, Achtung, is a violation of the law. Und, they will be required to update their information every year and provide all kinds of invasive things about what it is that they've gotten, even why. 
And maybe this shouldn't surprise us. This is, after all, the same country that licenses the peons even to be allowed to possess a radio receiver so that they can tell what's going on outside of Big Brother's ministries of propaganda. Uh, come to think of it, though, Nazi Germany did the same thing. From there, let's talk about things Big Brother doesn't want Americans to see, like the truth about the January 6th false flag operation and the depths that they're willing to go to to prevent you from figuring out just how far gone things actually are. I'll start with this story, courtesy of the Gateway Pundit, which says the ratings for Tucker Carlson's reveal of the January 6th videos are in, and they're huge. And no doubt that's a big part of the reason why socialist leftist, a.k.a. Democrats, were so panicked about Tucker getting his hands on what they didn't want people to know. They knew there'd be a massive audience, unlike what would have happened if it had been on, say, CNN, or pushed out by the so-called January 6th Select Committee. Uh, come to think of it, it was, and it seems a whole lot of people actually saw through that. The ratings headline says Fox News scored six times more viewers during prime time than CNN, soaring to an average of over three million viewers Tuesday night. Anchored by Tucker Carlson, who brought in 4.14 million viewers after the controversy sparked on Monday night. No wonder Chucky and his pals went to the mat to shut it down. But there's a related aspect to this story that unfortunately won't get nearly the degree of coverage. An update from TGP says sources say that FBI agents, who could have thought such a thing, colluded to illegally intercept one of the so-called Proud Boys and his communications with his attorney. Hey, attorney-client privilege, like so many other aspects of the Bill of Rights, demolished. And the paper trail exposes both the FBI various agents, and the Department of Just Us. This piece comes from Kara Kostranowova, and it centers on a compromised FBI agent who took the stand at the so-called trial of the Proud Boys to testify for the persecution. And it was revealed during cross-examination that FBI agent Nicole Miller had intercepted strategy notes between defendant Zachary Rell and his former defense attorney, Jonathan Mosley, with the clear intent to continue violating attorney-client privilege and aid the prosecution before this latest show trial. When defense counsel Nick Smith took the podium to begin his cross-examination of the uh, agent, he stunned the courtroom with the shocking revelation of a thread between special FBI agent Miller and another lead FBI agent on the Proud Boys so-called sedition case. And the message read, found an email thread with Rell and his attorney Mosley. The attorney raised some interesting points. I need to find other emails, but this one email definitely indicates that they want to go to trial. But don't freak out, Jason and Luke, yet implying that all of this would be shared with the prosecution before it became a problem. Apparently, Miller was intercepting messages between a prisoner and his attorney, which is, unless you work for the FBI or CNN or some socialist media platform, a direct violation of the 6th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution. And yes, attorney-client privilege is one of the oldest and most respected privileges of, um, well, the common law back when we had it. And let me say it again, folks, no wonder they don't want Americans to be able to see those videos, because they certainly don't want the Proud Boys or any of the other January 6th defendants to be allowed access to those things either. By the way, back when we had a rule of law, because it goes to show the innocence of those being persecuted by Big Brother in these show trials. On then to economics and finance, or at least the meltdown already in progress. And I'm going to introduce it this way, with a piece from Zero Hedge under Tyler Durden's byline about the WWE. What's that got to do with it, you might be thinking? Well, begins the piece as if rigged stock markets weren't enough. The WWE is now reportedly talking to state gambling regulators in Colorado and in Michigan to lobby for legalized gambling on their matches. Huh? 
Yeah, you know the trick, right? The catch, it says. Unlike actual sport, the outcomes of these wrestling matches have already been determined ahead of time. But you get to bet on it. Does that sound anything like what you might be seeing in the cricket casinos? Yeah, the parallels, I hope, are pretty clear at this point. And maybe so is the lesson. Oh, and if this succeeds, what else is next, you might be wondering? Well, how about betting on future character deaths in soap operas? Or I know, how about this one? Jobless data. And on that score, the Zero Hedge headline here says, WTF chart of the day. Jobless claims finally rise as layoffs soar at the fastest pace since Lehman. And according to Challenger, Gray, and Christmas, it begins, U.S.-based employers announced 77,770 job cuts in February. That's 410% higher than the 15,000 and change cuts announced during the same month last year. And February's total is the highest for the month since 2009. And there's a lot more data and charts here, but basically, the worst since layman they noticed, never a good thing. But that was followed shortly thereafter by this story from the same source. Brace for a surge in initial jobless claims. This time it's Goldman Sachs, the vampire squid, that's warning that the favorable seasonal adjustments now seem to be over. And I'll read through some of the bureaucraties here. Two weeks ago, they reported that J.P. Morgan was the latest bank to join the ever-growing parade of sell-side analysts who'd had enough of the Department of Labor's ridiculous seasonal adjustments, especially when it comes to making the biden Fuhrer at least try to look good. Specifically, bank economist Dan Silver politely said that, now get this, some alternative seasonal adjustments of the initial claims data show less favorable changes in filings from recent weeks than the official figures. Yeah, you need the translation. The various adjustments embedded in initial claims data had gotten so grotesque that even the largest U.S. bank had to bring attention to them, and understandably so because the divergence had just plain gotten too big to ignore but between uh, the reality and the spin. So now, none other than Goldman Sachs has joined the bandwagon, slamming the Department of Labor's gratuitous data fudging, with Chief Economist Jan Hatzius writing that, quote, seasonal adjustment issues have exerted an increasing amount of downward pressure on initial claims over the last few months, and that pressure, he predicted, will begin to reverse in a few weeks, i.e., we're getting ready to see a big spike in claims. So the bottom line, says Tyler Dern, the Biden regime may have been able to hide for months behind grotesque and gratuitous seasonal adjustments, maintaining the false impression that at least the U.S. labor market was stable at a time of collapsing corporate profits and soaring inflation, thus feeding the Fed all kinds of false signals, demanding further, say it with me, folks, monetary tightening and higher interest rates. But all of that is about to come to an end. Here's another indicator making the same point. Amid the mounting speculation, says this piece of a soft landing, and even talk of no landing, we, meaning Zero Hedge, have pointed out multiple strategists who don't share that amazing sense of optimism, but rather one that is typical of an end-cycle environment. In other words, uh, things are a lot closer to the end than the beginning. A new report, they say, by Canada-based logistics company Descartes Systems Group indicates that U.S. shipping container imports plunged 22% in the first two months of the year, according to Bloomberg. In January and February, the total volume of inbound containers, measured in 20-foot equivalent units, was 3.8 million, down from 4.78 million recorded during the same period in 2022. And yes, they say, container import declines into the world's largest economy may be an ominous sign as some strategists believe a recession. Can you imagine that? Just might unfold in the second half of the year. Oh, yeah, and don't forget those rate increases, which are only now beginning to filter in and do their, uh, well, whatever they've got planned. 
One more today from Zero Hedge. Is the bursting of that tech bubble finally spilling over into the financial system? One day after the biggest crypto-focused bank, Silvergate Capital announced their plans to unwind and liquidate after a deposit run effectively killed their core business model. This morning, its far larger peer, the parent company of the venerable Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB Financial Group, saw its shares plunge the most in two decades after the company took steps to, quote, bolster its financial position that included not only a highly dilutive stock offering, but also a panicked asset sale that sparked fears of a liquidity crisis at one of the biggest and original providers of funding to the venture capital industry. Yep, they've suffered a 47% crash amidst the sudden liquidity crisis. All of which inclines your host to look back just almost exactly a year ago this week to a story that certainly bears on those liquidity implications for the fiat U.S. almighty dollar. Dateline March 30, 2022. The Russians have announced they're going to bind the ruble to gold at 5,000 rubles per gram. That basically turns out to be around $1,600 per ounce for gold. That puts a floor under the rigged gold price in U.S. dollars. But it also means that because Russia will only sell its oil and gas in rubles, which are now fixed at 5,000 per gram, anyone who'd like to buy oil or gas will need to pay in rubles or in gold. And that takes me to some analysis by Tom Luongo via his website, Gold, Goats, and Guns, as well as Tyler Durden and Zero Hedge, who says, I don't think everyone has caught the significance of this incredible announcement, Russia's putting a floor under the price of gold. They just broke the world paper gold suppression scheme, he writes. You cursed brat! Look what you've done! I'm melting! Melting! Oh, what a world! What a world! Who would have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful wickedness? And even though a few days prior to this, the world knew what was coming, and the West was running around with all kinds of legislation to try and keep the Russians from doing exactly that, and arguably, more importantly, from trying to keep the world from figuring out that they've been had, well, says the Wongo, echoing what your host has been saying for quite a while now, Russia ain't selling any gold, they're buying it. And you'd think that the architects of the Great Reset and Global Monetary System would understand what's going on here. But clearly they don't. They think they control the flow of commodities around the world through price suppression schemes on the CRIMEX, LBMA, and ICE. They do not, and the Russians have made it clear. Austrians, says Luongo, like myself, have always understood that eventually inside money, money that exists within the financial system, fails because it's ultimately nothing more than a Ponzi scheme built on top of outside money, real money that exists outside the financial system, things like commodities, gold and silver, real stuff, and even, perhaps, Bitcoin. So let's start with the basics. Why do we create money? To mitigate the time risk between selling what we have and buying what we want. We sell our labor today to buy gasoline or whatever. In the meantime, we hold real money, something that has real value that other people might want. And hint, hint, once they figure out that doesn't include paper anymore, the jig is up. So back he says to the ruble and gold, because once the new incentive structure is laid out, it'll be clear as to why the G7 has no friends in this fight anymore. Davos and the World Economic Forum and related banksters and their power rest on the ability to create credit and sell it at a positive interest carry to commodity producers. Basically, commodity production in any kind of efficient market should be at a very low margin. 
In other words, think maybe 1% to 4% real annual return. But if you try to sell them debt to extract oil or gold out of the ground at higher rates than that, it ultimately sucks all of the profit out of the venture. It's the desire of higher profits over baseline that makes the economy run. And so, he says, if the banks are on both sides of the trade setting the price of money, then they ultimately control who wins and who loses while this is allowed to go on. And let's not mince words, it's them. The profit rolls up to those who produce the highest order goods with the most complex supply chains. But the other end, those who produce the more basic things necessary for everything else, get squeezed. Don't believe me? Ask the cattle farmers. And since we've now reached the point where debt saturation has occurred, no more debt can be issued to extract mineral wealth and have the markets believe it could ever be paid back and still provide any real yield, the system has to be reset. So the whole point of the Great Reset is to crash the existing system but leave these same colonialists in power legally. It's really no more complicated than that. The goal was to destroy the ruble, but now the Russians have cleverly, maybe this was the plan all along, linked it to gold, and people are going to end up saying, huh, you know what, I can buy gold in rubles for a lot less than I can buy it in dollars. Maybe I should sell dollars and buy rubles, or buy gold, because basically it amounts to almost the same thing. The ruble's undervalued, gold has clearly been suppressed, and the dollar is obviously overvalued. Here's how Tom Luongo explains that in a bit more detail. At $1,550 per ounce, which is what all the calculations work out to here, from rubles to dollars to gold, the first order effect here implies a ruble to U.S. dollar rate of around 75 to 1, incentivizing those holding the ruble to continue and those needing them to bid up the price from current levels. So it's ruble strengthening. Number two, this creates a positive incentive loop to bring the ruble back to pre-war levels. Then after that, market effects take over as ruble demand becomes structural based on Russia's trade balance, which looks really good compared to the United States that's committing Harry Carey. Number three, once that happens and the ruble-to-dollar ratio falls below 75, then the U.S. price of gold rises structurally, draining the paper gold markets, which can't deliver what they've already promised anyway, and then collapsing the financial system based on leverage versus hypothecated, that means we pretend to have it, but we really don't because we've sold it more times than you can imagine, gold. So now we're into the arbitration phase that, as others have postulated, leads to an oil price in gold of about a 1,000 barrels to the ounce. And think about it, folks. That's quite a number. So this scheme, he says, incentivizes Russians to hold their savings in rubles because the ruble is undervalued. It also incentivizes foreign traders to hold rubles because the ruble is undervalued relative to an overvalued open gold price. And given that Putin has already demanded, quote, unfriendly countries to pay for their Russian imports with either gold or their ruble, the natural choice is for them to buy rubles until such time as the price of gold and the ruble are in sync. In other words, the price of manipulation has been dissipated from international markets. And the howls of pain from the G7 and Germany in particular are equal parts pathetic and hilarious, says Luongo, as they complain that Putin is in breach of contract for demanding a different payment currency for gas other than euros, as might have been stipulated in the contract that they don't intend to pay any attention to anyway. But the Kremlin's quick shoot-down of the German economy minister's comments and the G7 stance on the ruble came earlier this week via a Russian lawmaker. As R.I.E. Novosti put it, Russian lawmaker Abramov states that the G7's refusal to pay in Russian rubles for gas will definitely lead to a halt in supplies. 
I guess that'll teach him. And Luongo even notes that the Russians are now willing to talk about Bitcoin being used to pay for their oil. And as anyone else, he asked, noted the current rally in the world's most hated cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. And that means look for Big Brother America, at least, to outlaw it. So now, says Luongo, we have a full gold, Bitcoin, ruble, and soon yuan enter a conversion system that will completely and utterly cut Davos out and destroy their colonial debt model while also taking away their power to crash economies through hot money in and out flows. Because the next step in all of this is for Russia to close their capital account and nationalize the Bank of Russia, making the Russian government the only source of international rubles. De facto backed by gold. So as he puts it, the war is over, folks. Russia, China, and the rest of the global south have already won. And there's nothing the West can do about it other than war on the ground. And that's the part that ought to scare us. And note, he says, that Putin even let the world down easy via this announcement. He could have walked right in and said 8,000 rubles to the gram, or 25.75 per ounce, and that would have broken the markets immediately. But instead, he let them down gently, waiting until after option expiration last Friday and the Fed's interest rate hike plan. Still in progress, and you know what? Exactly as we said then... The neocons have been escalating ever since. And may Yahuwah bless you and yours.